Hello and welcome to one and all to the latest edition of the Global in the Granite State podcast, a program of the World Affairs Council of New Hampshire. We are honored that you have decided to tune in for this important discussion and to gain a better understanding of the world around you. My name is Tim Horgan, and I am your host for this program, as well as the executive director of WACNH. Before we dive in, I wanted to ask that you consider either joining the membership of the council or donating to help support this ongoing effort. We have seen great engagement in these conversations, but we need your help to keep the lights on and the conversations going. For anyone who is listening to this prior to June 8th, we have an amazing opportunity to double or even triple your donation. On June 7th and 8th, the World Affairs Council of New Hampshire is participating in New Hampshire Gives, a 24-hour giving challenge, and we need your help to unlock these valuable additional funds. Find out more on our website at wacnh.org. Speaking of great supporters, I want to thank McLean Middleton for their ongoing support of this podcast. Your financial donation helps us to continue bringing these interesting, topical discussions to thousands of people across the world. McLean Middleton is one of New England's premier full-service law firms with over 100 attorneys throughout offices in New Hampshire and Massachusetts. McLean Middleton's attorneys have been providing trusted legal services to businesses throughout the region for over 100 years. Learn more at McLean.com. Without further ado, let's get into today's conversation. One of the most annoying things in international affairs, and life in general, is when bad behavior is rewarded. You see many examples of this over the centuries, meaning it is nothing new, but it makes it no less annoying when it does happen. The United States has a long history of supporting horrible dictators around the world in pursuit of their Cold War objectives, ignoring our own values so long as it meant anti-communism efforts continued. China had been invited into global economic institutions to try and reform their systems, while not actually meeting the requirements of membership. One of the more recent examples of this comes in the form of Turkey. Over the past 10 plus years, President Erdogan has taken every opportunity to leverage international crises into a chance to extract concessions from its allies and friends. From threatening to send Syrian refugees to Europe, unless the European Union paid multiple millions of euros to his government, to now threatening to veto the membership applications of Finland and Sweden, Turkey seems to not share the same goals as most, if not all, of its Western allies. With this latest iteration of Erdogan's obstructionism, it led me to ask the question, is Turkey a reliable and important partner for the West? Also, would reducing reliance on Turkey make any of these issues better or worse? So I went to our resident Turkey expert, friend of the podcast, and World Affairs Council of New Hampshire board member, Melinda Nagran-Gonzalez. 
Melinda is the chair of the Department of Security Studies at the University of New Hampshire, Manchester, and has focused much of her research on Turkey and the greater Middle East, having spent extensive time visiting the region. In order to answer the question of Turkey's reliability and shared goals, it is important to start at the beginning and explore why Turkey was invited to join the West in the first place. In thinking about Turkey's membership in NATO, we've got to go back to 1952 because Turkey's been a NATO member since 52. And you have to think about the post-World War II context and the threat posed by the Soviet Union. And if you look at a map, you see that Turkey is very geostrategically important, especially in that post-World War II context as the Soviet Union posed the main security threat to the U.S. and Western Europe. And so if you think back to some history class that you took at some point and you learned about the Truman Doctrine, that basically was this idea that the U.S. really needed to beef up this nascent military alliance, uh, NATO, and think about the eastern flank and the countries that are right there in the Soviet Union's backyard. And so that's when Greece and Turkey become part of the scene, so to speak. And throughout the Cold War, Turkey's importance geostrategically was very clear. It housed American nuclear weapons. And so From the very beginning, that relationship has been based on Turkey's position, geostrategic importance. And then, of course, after the fall of the Soviet Union, Turkey continues to be geostrategically important because of U.S. national interests and Western interests more broadly in the Middle East and in the Eastern Mediterranean. And so it's been a longstanding partnership that has been punctuated with periods of instability and tension between allies, which is to be expected. Looking at the map, Turkey sits at the crossroads of several different cultures, continents, and vital linkages via land, sea, and air. As the strategy of containment grew during the Cold War, Turkey became an ever more important bulwark against the spread of communism into these various regions. It is important to note that During this time, Turkey was not a liberal democracy. Turkey's never been a liberal democracy, and that was A-OK with NATO allies because geostrategically its importance was very clear. And so there were military coups in Turkey and all kinds of political instability and so on. And that was fine as long as Turkey served as a strong NATO partner. It would therefore seem that Turkey, from the beginning, was a beneficiary of the West's willingness to support and reward bad behavior if the perceived benefits outweighed the negatives. This is a lesson that Turkey has learned well and leaned on heavily in the more recent past. Over the past 10 years or so, Erdogan has clashed with his Western allies on several issues. One of the first major rifts came between Turkey and the European Union over Syrian refugees. Many EU countries wanted to stem the flow of these war refugees coming to their borders, and Turkey was willing to host. However, Turkey has demanded over 6 billion euros to help support the housing and education of these people, threatening to release them to Europe's borders if his demands were not met. It is reasonable to ask for monetary support to help the largest refugee population in the world, but it is not helpful to use these people as political pawns. Then, there are the ongoing tensions over the Mediterranean and the resources found there. 
Greece and Turkey are at odds over control of the area, pitting two NATO countries against each other. There have also been very public spats with France and Turkey, with each leader making disparaging comments about the other over a variety of issues. There are too many examples to fully dive into, but the fact remains that Turkey seems to have its own priorities outside of what NATO, the EU, and the US seem to band behind. When you look at Turkey's foreign policy under the AK party and under President Erdogan, what you see is a response to changing circumstances in the world, right? I mean, it's a post-Cold War international system that's becoming much more multipolar, and Turkey is trying to position itself in a place where it can have its cake and eat it too. It wants to stay in NATO. There is no way that Erdogan or others in his party want to leave NATO. They benefit greatly from their NATO membership. That being said, they also have to play nice with Russia because Turkey relies heavily on Russia for energy resources and also for grain and also for tourism. Russians go to Turkey, the Turkish coast, which is beautiful, by the way, highly recommended as a place for your next vacation, go to Turkey's coast in droves and make up something like 20% of tourism in Turkey. And so Turkey has to play nice with Russia. And that, of course, irks the U.S. greatly and, and NATO more broadly. And then finally, you have Turkey's relationship with China as China rises and Turkey is trying to think about the long game and how it's going to be well positioned to interact with a rising China that's going to assert its power more globally. And so Turkey's trying to do this geostrategic balancing act that it's not doing very well, <laughs> arguably, but it's not irrational. And so in terms of just strategy, there's some good logic there, even if in its execution, it's very sloppy. And of course, the guy at, at the top, Erdogan, is bombastic and ha needs a PR person <laughs> to help him navigate those international relationships. This is international politics, realism 101. This is about national security interest and put values to the side for a moment. It's not unreasonable for Turkey, whoever is in charge, let's pretend Erdogan didn't exist. It's not unreasonable for Turkey to want to balance these relationships with great powers. They know that they are geostrategically important. They've been geostrategically important for centuries, right? I mean, so that isn't going to change and they're going to try to leverage that whenever they get a chance, no matter who's in power. It is understandable that not every ally is going to line up perfectly on every issue. Each country's reality is different, and the balancing act they need to maintain will drive different priorities. We have seen this in the U.S.-Australia-Great Britain submarine deal that ruffled France's feathers. You even see this in the current crisis over the invasion of Ukraine, where some NATO members were ready to give warplanes to the Ukrainians, and the U.S. squashed that idea. However, it seems that these public rifts play out more often with Turkey. It is entirely reasonable to believe that there are just as many issues behind closed doors, but that Erdogan simply likes to go public with these issues to maximize the impact at home and abroad. 
The question then is, does this work for him? Or has it been detrimental to the power that he can wield? We have to remember that, and this is true for all statesmen, you know, they're, they're playing a two-level game, so to speak. There's the stuff that's said for the international audience, and then there's the stuff that's said for the domestic audience. And there is a strong undercurrent in Turkish political culture generally speaking, of anti-Westernism, anti-Americanism, and especially during an election season, which it is right now in Turkey, that kind of anti-Western, anti-American posture by Erdogan really plays well to his base. It plays well even beyond the ultranationalist base because there is this very strong sense in Turkey among a lot of different ideological groups, not just Islamists or not just religious conservatives and AKP voters, that the West and especially the U.S. behaves like a bully and has done things that have really undermined Turkey's power, and especially, for example, U.S. support to YPG Kurdish forces in Syria and things like that. And so when Turkey and Erdogan specifically lashes out against the West or against NATO, there's usually a bit of truth behind those statements. And I think sometimes we get caught up in Erdogan's personality and and the way that he's so combative that we lose sight of some of the truth that's behind the criticisms against NATO allies and against Sweden and Finland specifically here, because it is true that a high-ranking person in the Kurdish Communities Union is, in fact, in Sweden. And yes, he addressed parliamentarians, which is interesting because the EU and Sweden and the US and, and, and all of the above consider the PKK to be a terrorist organization. It is certainly true that the US does not always get it right, both internationally and domestically. Again, the country has supported some truly terrible people and policies the world over, so we should not be immune to criticism. So, what is behind Turkey's objections to Finland and Sweden joining NATO when they are the lone member to publicly stand in the way of the expansion of this alliance. Basically, President Erdogan is accusing Sweden and Finland of harboring PKK terrorists and Gulenist terrorists. So let's start with the the PKK accusation first. For years, Kurdish political dissidents have sought asylum in various European countries. And some of those people in the Kurdish diaspora throughout Europe do support either indirectly or directly the PKK and or various organizations affiliated with the PKK. And so specifically for the latest accusation by Erdogan and the AKP government, they are taking issue with a particular individual in Sweden who is part of the KCK Executive Council, and the KCK is the Kurdistan Communities Union, which is a political organization that is tied to the Kurdistan Workers Party or the PKK. And 
it's important to keep in mind that for the PKK and other similar guerrilla organizations that have political wings, they are very savvy in creating legitimate organizations in other countries that are cultural organizations. And so it's tricky to really tell which side has the story correct. The Turks have been accusing various European governments of hosting PKK operatives for decades, and various European governments will push back that they've investigated the matter and these are legitimate cultural organizations and so on. And there have been times when various European governments have shut down, for example, Kurdish satellite television stations that are run out of various European countries that were then eventually found to have some links to the PKK. And so there is some truth to Erdogan's accusations that PKK-related individuals and organizations are able to conduct operations in European countries. And so the Erdogan government has issued various extradition requests from Sweden and Finland and other European countries for people that the AKP government deems terrorist. Therein lies the puzzle because from the Turkish perspective, any political dissident who promotes Kurdish rights is seen as a terrorist, is labeled as a terrorist. And so there are disagreements between the AKP government and various European governments on who or what is a terrorist. And so that is why Turkey and and President Erdogan specifically is lobbying these accusations against Sweden and Finland specifically about those two countries harboring PKK terrorists. It is true that some of these individuals in Sweden and Finland may have some indirect or direct links to organizations that are close to the PKK guerrilla group. With respect to the accusation that they're harboring, quote unquote, FETO, which is the Fethullah Gulen terrorist organization, as it's been labeled by the AKP government, that's another similar situation where the AKP government has labeled certain individuals terrorists for allegedly carrying out the failed military coup in Turkey in 2016. And it is true that some of those individuals sought asylum in Sweden and Finland and have created human rights organizations, for example, that are documenting human rights violations by the Turkish government against people who the government of Turkey alleges were behind that failed military coup. And again, There's this back and forth between Turkey and various European governments and and the American government about who is a Gulenist quote unquote terrorist. And so for people who remember a couple of years ago when there was this problem between the U.S. and Turkey regarding Fethullah Gulen, who lives in Pennsylvania. It's that same scenario here. We are seeing it with Turkey and Sweden and Finland, where Turkey is basically
basically accusing the Swedish government and the Finnish government of harboring Gulenist quote unquote terrorists as Turkey sees them. Unlike the PKK, which is regarded a terrorist organization by the European Union, by NATO allied countries, and by the US, the Gulenist organization is not regarded as such by any of those entities. And so this is where Turkey is by itself in that regard, considering the FETO organization as a terrorist organization. The use of the term terrorist to describe military coup plotters is problematic in the sense that typically the label terrorist is used for non-state armed groups. And here you have a scenario in which a section of the armed forces of Turkey carried out a military coup that was ultimately unsuccessful. And so we have state actors, high-ranking military officials that carried out the failed military coup. And so there's a problematic issue there with the definition. And then beyond that, the Turkish government has simply not provided adequate intelligence that clearly demonstrates these particular individuals and or this FETO organization, which may or may not exist, was behind the military coup. So again, that FETO organization is something that actually was created by the Turkish government in the sense that they are assuming that there is this clear hierarchical organization within the Turkish armed forces that carried out the coup. And these people who were behind the coup don't go around calling themselves FETO. And another twist to this story, The U.S. and NATO partners have worked closely with the YPG and SDF groups throughout the Syrian civil war. This, of course, further complicates the relationship with Turkey, as they believe YPG Kurdish forces are aligned with PKK forces, which therefore accuses the U.S. and NATO of working with terrorist groups. In unpacking all of this, it is important to better understand the connections and relationships which then leads to a deeper understanding of Turkey's further objection to Finland and Sweden's entry into NATO. So during the Syrian civil war, ISIS became more and more prominent and able to capture territory and ultimately created the Islamic State Caliphate. And the Kurdish forces, the YPG forces, were fighting against ISIS and having a really difficult time. The short version of this story is that there was a siege in 2014 and the United States became directly involved in providing some air support for people in Kobani and the YPG forces turned out to be the most robust militia fighting ISIS forces and the United States decided to partner with the YPG Kurdish forces in Northern Syria, much to the chagrin of Turkey because the YPG forces are linked to the Kurdistan Workers Party of Turkey. How linked is up for debate. 
the YPG forces do follow the ideology created by Abdullah Ojalan, who is the founder of the PKK, and they see him as their leader, though he is imprisoned in Turkey. And so there are certainly very, very strong ideological links. In terms of personnel, the Turkish government has argued that there are also links between personnel in the PKK and the YPG forces. The US has claimed this is inaccurate information. And this discussion has gone on for the past several years as the U.S. has provided critical support for the YPG forces and the SDF forces. A YPG is part of the SDF umbrella. And so from the AKP government perspective, the YPG and SDF forces and the PKK are one in the same. That is not how the international community <laughs> views the relationship between YPG, SDF, and the PKK. And so there's been this tendency on the part of NATO countries and the United States specifically to sort of gloss over the historical ties between YPG forces and the PKK. And what the Turks have argued is that the YPG is also active in Turkey. And the YPG, of course, has denied that. The United States has also pushed back against that allegation. And so there is this back and forth between Turkey and various NATO countries about the degree to which the YPG is operationally linked to the PKK. And in the Turkish press, which, by the way, is mostly run by Erdogan cronies. So just, you know, take that into consideration. But in the Turkish press, there are regularly stories about how YPG forces are involved in PKK activities in Turkey and also in northern Iraq. And so part of Turkey's problem with Sweden and Finland joining NATO is that Sweden and Finland have been supportive, like other NATO countries, of the YPG forces and the SDF forces in northern Syria. So that's part of the story here. Another interesting factor to explore is Turkey's attempt to play both sides in the Ukraine-Russia war. They are currently providing military support to Ukraine, most critically in the form of drones, while refusing to isolate and cut ties with Russia. Will this strategy work in the long term, or will there come a point where they have to choose a side, either with NATO or against it? This is Turkey's strategy, right? I mean, it's trying to give a little bit to this side and give a little bit to this side and hope that they can just continue doing that for the foreseeable future. And so I, I don't know how this will play out, because as you said, on the one hand, Turkey is certainly providing Ukraine support and especially those drones, which have been you know, significant on the battlefield and have really helped Ukrainian forces. But on the other hand, it's not supporting the sanctions regime. But another thing that, that Turkey is doing is it closed the Dardanelles to all warships in response to Russia's attack on Ukraine. And that's a big thing that it's sort of 
quote unquote, giving to NATO also. And so I think that the Turks will continue to do this back and forth. You get a little bit from us, you get a little bit from us and hope that they can continue that balancing act for the foreseeable future until one of those sides pushes back and and forces Turkey to choose. But I think that Erdogan understands that Turkey has some leverage, especially with the closing of the Dardanelles and and sending the support in in the form of drones, etc. And I think also that NATO allies understand that Turkey is in a tricky predicament because of all NATO countries, Turkey is the most exposed to Russia. Turkey, not just because it's a neighbor of Russia, but also because Turkey is involved in Syria and in Libya and in various other situations in which it is actually on the opposite side of Russia. And there are there are plenty of things that Russia can do to sort of you know make Turkey feel the pain. And so I think Washington and other NATO allies understand that Turkey is in a tricky predicament. And I think that's probably why for years, the Americans and other NATO allies have given Turkey some wiggle room. And so when Erdogan sort of, quote unquote, misbehaves, you know, I'm sure there's a lot of eye rolling in Washington, and he's lost a lot of support in Washington. There were a lot of Turkey supporters for years. But I think that there are still Turkey supporters in European capitals and and, and D.C. because people understand that Turkey is more exposed to Russia. And because of its location, it's also more exposed to what China is going to be doing in Asia and globally. So I think if you look at Turkey versus, you know, a cozy country, like let's pick on Belgium, right? I mean, it's different circumstances. And I think people in NATO countries understand that. This is perhaps the point of the situation that Turkey finds itself in. They are stuck between these powers, and they are working to provide for their own security. It is not an enviable position to be in, but it may also be the case that Erdogan's personality is not right for this sort of diplomacy. His abrasive nature rubs people the wrong way, but he still gets what he wants, reinforcing the traits that grate on the governments that he's trying to get concessions from. Make no mistake, he's an astute tactician, even though he's sloppy in his delivery of his messages. He knows what he can get away with with NATO. He knows what he can get away with with Russia. And so I think that they'll continue to follow this path. And I think also we're at a point where Turkey and uh, where Erdogan specifically and, and some of his inner circle have realized that they have taken some missteps and now they're engaging in this charm offensive in their in their region. Just this week, Turkey's foreign minister met with his counterpart in Israel. It's the first time that's happened uh, in 15 years. And they're reaching out uh, an olive branch to Saudi Arabia. And so I think the Turks are, are seeing themselves, and part of this is just Turkish political culture and truth, as surrounded by you know unfriendly states, if not enemies, and their combative approach hasn't necessarily brought a lot of gains. And so now they're sort of scaling back and doing this charm offensive to their Middle Eastern neighbors and trying to give NATO a little bit and trying to give the Russians a little bit. It does seem to work, though. 
as the West has caved on a number of issues, allowing Erdogan the opportunity to drive the policy of NATO and the EU. Does it mean that we are doomed to continue this pattern for the foreseeable future, assuming that Erdogan wins in the upcoming elections? Yeah, I really don't see the strategy changing dramatically as long as Erdogan and the AK party is in power. Oh, and by the way, I'll just <laughs> mention that I don't think that he's as electorally vulnerable as some people think he is. I, Erdogan will find a way. That dude cannot step down. It, it's That's not happening. <laughs> uh, so I think that as long as he's steering the ship, we won't see a dramatic change in this strategy, even as we're seeing, you know, a little bit softer approach and, you know, rapprochement with, you know, Israel and Saudi Arabia. But I think that this is the strategy. So for people who are Turkey watchers, you know, there was this strategy that was followed during the Davutoglu years of, you know, no problems with neighbors, right? And then there was this about face of combative stance, and it led to all kinds of problems with all of the neighbors. I think that they're trying to find a midway between no problems, the no problem strategy of the first decade of the 21st century, and what Erdogan has been doing the past decade. So I don't see that changing much. But he's not going to stop speaking out against what he considers Western imperialism and, and American hegemony. Going with this prediction of a rocky relationship moving forward, we must ask the question of whether Turkey can and should remain in the Western alliance structure. There are definitely analysts and important people in Washington who believe the time has come to really move away from Turkey, if not oust it from NATO altogether. And there are ways to do that. I mean, there are ways to really rely on other partners in the region and sort of disengage a little bit from Turkey by really downgrading the importance of Injir Air Base in Adana, for example, or you know, finding somewhere else to park American nukes, that sort of thing. And a lot of analysts have talked about the specific measures that the U.S. could take and NATO more broadly could take to disengage a bit with Turkey because Turkey is seen by many as an unreliable partner. And there's definitely some truth to that. And so rather than severing the partnership altogether, which really is not likely, there are ways to disengage. And and I think that is probably a smart move on the part of the US, on the part of NATO. But because of the geostrategic importance, there will be cards to play for whoever is in power in Turkey. In the end, it looks like we're stuck with an imperfect partner in Turkey, as well as a number of other countries that we work with today. There's a constant balance that we need to manage between our values and the objectives in the world. It is impossible to say we will only work with partners who fully support our values, but it is also equally impossible for us to ignore the violation of human rights and contravention of our strategic interests by our partners. It may also be possible to work with problematic partners in a more effective way to pressure them to change their ways to better align themselves with our values. In the same way that Turkey is playing all sides, the U.S. and its NATO allies can work to praise Turkey for the positive they do 
while pushing back on the negative aspects of their actions. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Global and the Granite State podcast, a production of the World Affairs Council of New Hampshire. If you have made it this far, you obviously enjoyed our discussion today, and I hope you will take a moment to leave us a review, rate this episode, or send us an email using council at wacnh.org. Also, A quick reminder that we have a donation link in the episode description that makes it super easy for you to support this great program. Thank you for all you do to help make the world a little more understandable. As always, the producer, host, audio engineer, technical support, graphic designer, and everything else for this podcast is Tim Horgan. Our theme music is Admin by A.A. Alto, and our interlude music is Problem Solvent by Demira. This is global in the granite state.